everything's ready here on the dark side of the moon. Play the five tones. It's Manson Mitchell on the weekend with Gary Manson's Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to power up your day. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. Happy Saturday to you. I'm Gary Mans. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together we are Manson Mitchell in your ears for the hour, and we are joined, as always, of a Saturday by tall guy Nathan at the board. Nathan, how are you today, sir? Buongiorno, Gary and Suzanne. Fresh back from Chicago. Oh, really? Well, Chicago is Italian. And lots of them in the Chicago area, especially pizza. Oh, that's true. (laughs) There's a lot of many ethnicities in Chicago. That's a cosmopolitan town with big shoulders. And Chicago is going to be rather a motif today because of our guest. Who's from the Chicago area. He lives south of the city. He's in the uh, Orland Park, Tinley Park, Tinley Park. area, and uh, that was in and of itself the site of an extraordinary UFO incident some years back, and we heard about it for the first time in detail not long after it happened, really, directly from San Maranto, when you and I were visiting Chicagoland, visiting your relatives, and we got together with him. We have some mad props for San Maranto. Notice how we're just going to launch, as it were, into this so that we can get into some very timely subject matter, which no doubt will remain controversial and the subject of further study. Samuel J. Maranto is the state director of the Illinois State Chapter of the Mutual UFO Network, also called MUFON. He's an investigative researcher best known for his work on the Tinley Park mass sightings of 2004 and the Chicago O'Hare Gate C-17 incident of 2006. As a frequent guest to a variety of radio shows, as well as requested public speaker, Sam makes a point to cover key fundamental facts that unshakably illustrate the genuine nature of this phenomenon. We are happy once again to welcome back Sam Maranto. So happy to see you guys and uh, hear you. And I'm actually here on time and this is good. Oh, that's very good. Yes, Sam, we can put that to rest forever. It happens. (laughs) We're delighted that you are with us. You and I are bedeviled by this residual parochial school guilt. And I have to admit, I've never completely exercised it from my personality, but I sure keep trying Well, and for those who missed it, uh, Sam was late to our last interview. He's on time for this one. And we, when we had him on last time, we were talking about the military uh, release of information about uh, unidentified aerial phenomenon and a big report that was due to come out. And we said, when that report comes out, we want you back to talk about it. Have I set that stage well enough, Gary? You certainly have, and we did as well in the social media. And I have to say, just as a tonsorial note, you look very distinguished with that mustache, which does not appear in the photo that we used accompanying the text advertising your visit here today. And a little goatee also. Oh, my goodness. Well, you're about one soul patch away from being a beatnik. You know it. (laughs) Maynard G. Krebs, remember him? Oh, Oh, do I ever. (laughs) 
Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes I think I'm living his life. That's Sometimes right. I think you're living his life. All right. you know, lay it on thick. Sure. There, uh, Sam, we're just delighted to have you with us. And let's get right to it now. I watched the 60 Minutes report, which was fascinating in itself that that venerable program would discuss this subject in a serious way. More serious, I think, uh, ultimately than the ABC News special, which was much ballyhooed back in the, oh gosh, that was the early 2000s. Uh, Peter Jennings was the host of that. And watching that special back in the day left me rather unsatisfied because it wasn't even a matter of tentative conclusions, which would be a scientific and objective way of looking at the subject of unidentified flying objects and the possibility of extraterrestrials visiting Earth. It tended to be more a case of, well, no matter how much the evidence is stacked up against them, these diehard believers persist in believe, believing that we have been visited and we are not alone. It's just left out there dangling. I don't get the feeling this time around, this many years later, with this report from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. What do you think, Sam? Well, I think it's it's a huge change from uh, the, the uh, uh, stigma that we had of ridicule and sarcasm, this is being dragged out and brought to light. First of all, the fact that the phenomena is genuine has been disclosed that, yes, we are dealing with something truly unusual and it can't be accounted for. Well, guess what? That's the first time they ever did anything like that. It's huge. Now, um, in comparison to all the different other attempts to bring information forward, be it the Condon Committee, and, and all those had value to some degree, and we seem to lose uh, some sort of um, uh, aspect as far as the value actually in, say, for instance, the Condon Committee, which was like a 1,400-page report, and we only get to see a small percentage of that in the summary book that most people could buy. He actually mentioned, Condon mentioned that he wanted that if there was anything as far as where we're at that point to scientifically study this and information were to come forward, he was going to bring it back to the scientific community and he'd welcome it. So that was a huge, uh, a huge note in the 1400 page report that was never mentioned in the public summary. So getting back to your, your, your scenario showing the, uh, uh, the ABC special with Peter Jennings, that, um, by the way, was his last uh, special. He died soon thereafter. Uh, and that was re-edited, I think, two times. There was tons of interviews that were made. I knew people, of course, knew people involved in that, and they were very upset. Do you know they actually called Stanton Friedman, a instead of a scientist and a physicist, they referred to him as a UFO enthusiast. Did you, did you oh know that? Goodness. Yes. So, yes. So comparatively, looking at the report, which I have in front of me, and most people should get their hands on it. You can get it, you know, I don't know if you have it up on your site or anything, but the bottom line is the information is, is quite a bit of a change. We are actually dealing with something that is a matter of national security. Now we have something that has brought to light a concern, and that's how it's being looked at as a national uh, a security concern right off the bat. When they state that the report provides an overview for the policymakers 
of the of the challenge associated with characterizing the potential threat posed by UAP, which of course is a new name for UFOs, it's more sanitized, which also provides a means to develop relevant processes, policies, technologies, that's interesting, and training for US military and other US government personnel if and when they encounter UAP. So as to enable the intelligence community's ability to understand the threat. Now, this is what's interesting. They brought it forth and it took hold because it was being presented as a threat. Before, it was never a threat. This was the correct way to do it. Yeah. I don't know if that answered your question, but it sure was a lot of words. No, it's that's a great answer, Sam. It also puts me in mind of what the British used to use as an old dodge in their, uh, I forget what they call their uh, defense department, but their defense uh, and intelligence complex. When they would be asked about something about which they did not wish to disclose sensitive information, they would say regarding UFOs, it has been found to not have any national security interest. It is not of defense interest. And so they just put it aside, like, not our department, nothing to see here, folks, nothing for us to worry about. Though uh, many reports and people who have left government service and those who leak information, and now with what they have provided, because the British have been pretty forthcoming before uh, we decided to take that informational turn, they were providing information that showed that there was a great deal going on in the skies over the UK that was of national security interest. You got it. And in fact, what I find interesting is um, uh, the gentleman was actually very much involved with the MOD study, uh, our uh, good friend, Nick Pope. He was very good in illustrating, well, what equates to a threat? It's capability. Now we have the capability of technology that literally outstrips outmatches anything in our arsenal or, for instance, our next generation or maybe even stuff that's on the board. So now we have we have the technology. Then you have intent. We have no idea what the intent is. We just know that these objects move with impunity. They are able to interact and possibly even um, destroy by some means of electronics uh, interference, our ability to engage other phenomena, or for instance, even the theater of war to engage the enemy. We have them actually uh, turning off and shutting down and no-go no scenarios, um, our atomic uh, weapons, and in some instances, putting them into a go scenario, which is very frightening because it would lead us to a stage of uh, war. Um, and and this, this is what we're dealing with. So um, based on that premise, of course, this should be evaluated. And this is the first time they're saying it. Before, it was never a threat. And that was what they would always say. In fact, in here we are in the very week of uh, the uh, 1952 anniversaries of, of the um, invasions of these unidentified objects over Washington, D.C., and over the coast, East Coast, and uh, throughout the country in 1952, 
uh, the bottom line is they said it didn't appear to pose no threat. Well, it's incursions. They had 90-some incursions during that period of time. They felt that there was a degree of concern, and we need to do something. That's why they convened, of course, the Robinson panel soon thereafter. Uh, I believe it was, uh, what date? I have the date written down, but back in January of 1953, where they convened the uh, Robinson panel, and they were the ones who came up the best way to keep this thing quiet because they were concerned about other issues like the Russians, and they didn't want the telephone lines all all cluttered people calling up with UFO reports. So they said they wanted to initiate ridicule and sarcasm, basically control media. And, and that really is the best way to do it. And it worked very well for all these years. One of the things that Gary and I were reading in the summary of the report was, um, well, let me preface that by saying, as Gary and I have talked over the years to various people regarding UFOs, we have um, had stories about, you know, farmers in Texas, about uh, rural people in West Virginia, a couple of fishermen in Mississippi, and it seems like the a lot of the interactions that we've discussed have all been with regular, normal citizens. We, we even had a friend in Chicago who was saying he was driving in a country road and saw one flying over their car and he saw it close up. And so it's always seemed as though it's with regular, normal people. But in the report, it says, and, I, and I, this goes to what you were saying with regard to the word threat, is that the unidentified aerial phenomena in the UAP were interrupting military training. And that was right in the summary. And then I went, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now I know where the word threat comes from if they are actually interrupting people who are practicing going to war. Yes. In 2004, that was exactly what that strike Nimitz group, the Nimitz strike group was doing. They were getting prepared to go to the Gulf. And um, so this was very serious that these objects were actually in an MOA, a military operations area, and um, having them to having them to cancel uh, operations and actually go back to the ships. So they didn't feel threatened, per se, as them engaging them but more so disrupting the um, the operations. And that in right. itself is a concern. Yeah, I get I get that because threat is a, a pretty loaded word. But it is. You, you explained threat mm -hmm. as the feeling that our government gets when they are witnessing capabilities which are so far beyond what we know. And, and we don't know the intention. Now, if you take the intention plus that capability, then you can you can clarify your threat. So as it is now, it's potentially a threat, and you have to take that seriously. You have to. So I understand that. I think we all do, and we could we could see a value to that. Um, the other interesting thing that I, I found really of value. They mentioned that most was 80 out of the 140 uh, were multiple platforms and sensories uh, that were picking them up. It wasn't just visual. 
So most of the UAPs reported probably do represent physical objects, given that the majority of UAPs were registered across multiple sensors to include radar, infrared, electro-optics, weapon seekers, and visual observations. And these are qualified observers. With the Nimitz, with the Nimitz scenario, I believe there are some 60 witnesses that had uh, performed various functions from either radar to even visual on-deck observations and, uh, of course, uh, flight and uh, weapons operators. So you have people with various stages of sensory um, operations and equipment that can qualify the fact that, yes, this did take place, in addition to the radar data, if they ever get their hands on it, and uh, any other, um, uh, say, for instance, platform uh, records. So, I mean, this, this was a very good, a very serious scenario, and it wasn't the only one. You know, we're talking 140 uh, some other reports, and that was only from 2004 to current, I think, to March, and they're still oh, cool. gathering data. Thank you for mentioning that, because I said to Gary just this morning, 144 and 80 seem like extremely low numbers and handpicked when you consider that this, you know, has been going on in the modern era since the late 40s. And, and so I said, what's that 144? That's, that's too little. But if you're saying that these were since 2004, then, you know, then it's a much shorter time period. So that makes more sense. And it's only, for instance, mainly, I would say, um, the Navy military operations, East Coast and West Coast. I don't even know if they have other reports, say, for instance, in other parts of the world, uh, say the Gulf, uh, the Mediterranean, or any other um, areas of operations. I don't know. I, I know most of these reports came in regularly from the East Coast, and those uh, incursions during 2004 and 2000, I believe, 15 and 19 on the uh, West Coast, 15 more so on the East Coast. So I don't, and then they're saying current current ones uh, up to March. So that means there's quite a few coming in. Wow. I wanted to read from the executive summary of this report. And this is actually highlighted in bold. So it, it really draws the eye. One page four. Um, let's see, it would be page three of nine. Okay. Yes, page three of nine in this report, the executive summary, as you read down one paragraph states, in a limited number of incidents, UAP, that is unidentified aerial phenomena, reportedly appeared to exhibit unusual flight characteristics. These observations could be the result of sensor errors, spoofing, or observer misperception and require additional rigorous analysis. I heard, or it wasn't heard, I read, I read a quote from one scientist who received this information, I believe it was in advance of the release of the report. And this gentleman suggested that these people may not be seeing what they think they are seeing. So there is that dismissiveness that misperception, of course, you're up there and you can, you're flying their high rate of speed training exercise. Maybe they simply misperceived something that has a far more earthbound explanation. 
And I think that may lead more towards the um, two things in particular that they say in here, spoofing, which is a counterintelligence process of actually making something appear on radar that isn't there. And we have that technology and so do other uh, adversary uh, nations. So these things do exist. And the other thing being, of course, uh, some sort of error. Uh, misperception when you have multiple platforms and multiple sensors picking stuff up, it becomes far less likely. And the other things, uh, the other thing is multiple observations, visual observations by pilots, by WIZOs, which are weapons uh, specialists, and by, uh, say, for instance, in the Nimitz case, uh, and the Hawkeye, which is the radar uh, uh, aircraft. There were also observations of it very close. The object came very close to the uh, aircraft. So in other words, there are enough validations from various points to eliminate that. Um, there would have to have been some universal hallucination uh, that was imposed in them some way or form by I don't even know what. So that's highly unlikely. Though in those other instances where you don't have multiple sensors, that is a possibility. And there's always the possibility that spoofing uh, to test a, uh, a new program did go, was involved in some instances or being used by, you know, by some other uh, adversary um, uh, country, you know. But for the most part, I don't think that does represent itself in the majority of these cases where there, there's 80 um, some of these uh, with multiple sensories, it would be harm, far more unlikely. But it's plausible. I mean, I should say possible, but I don't know if it's plausible. But good point. Okay. See, this is the kind of analysis we were hoping for, where you don't just take an ax to it. No, it can't possibly be such and such. I don't think that's any way to investigate much of anything, frankly. No. When, no, you got to weigh it, like you said, and you got to take take everything. You know, it's you got to be objective about it all. Yeah, yes, there's these possibilities, but is it probable considering you're having multiple um, sensors picking this stuff up? No, it may not be as precise as you'd like because some of these sensors aren't designed, as they stated in here, to function in the capacity of picking up such phenomena. So it may give um, a false reading as far as some of the characteristics, but not to the fact that the phenomenon is there, that something is there. So good point. You have been looking into this for many years now, Sam, and with this report having come out, was there something in the report that genuinely took you by surprise? Yes, I think on page, it's page six, if you could turn to page six. One of my favorite lines in here, my all-time favorite line, other than the fact that they, they acknowledge that um, because of the, uh, as they refer to, sociocultural stigmas and, and uh, uh, sensor limitations, more so I'm concerned with the sociocultural stigmas uh, being the reason why these reports have not come in from the military and intelligence communities, because people were... Uh, basically um, punished for bringing this forward and um, ridicule and sarcasm and all sorts of retribution. 
made it um, a stigma. You did not want to do a taboo. So hopefully that's gone and um, it'll actually save lives, I think, in the long term because people react. Particularly with the military, if somebody um, insisted, brought forth and insisted that they saw something that could not be explained, and would that mean that they might be, you know, relegated to peeling potatoes somewhere? Yes. You'd, yeah. You don't expect a promotion and possibly a lot of retribution from your uh, f- uh, fellow um uh, you know, fellow ranking officers, or if you're just a, uh, uh, a low ranking, um, you know, service person, you may never get an advancement. It can be worse. You never know. Now with pilots, let's per se, you're going to have to go for a, a psychological evaluation. Once that's on your record, do you think you're going to move up the ranks? No, it's going to be very difficult. There, there was even greater retribution for people who were told that you don't, bring this up. It doesn't happen. If you do, you're out. Well, in some instances, they would talk. And the bottom line, they're out. So, uh, and it could be far worse than that. You know, you look back to Roswell, and Roswell happened. There was ridicule, sarcasm, threats. And these things carried on uh, for a long period of time. I don't know if they still exist today. I would hope not. Uh, But I think by bringing this information out and uh, quelling it, I think we're taking things, and I'm saying the government is taking things in the right step, and I'm very, very happy with it. The one thing that I I get a kick out of on page six, if you go to page six, and this was probably my favorite line uh, other than the the one prior. On page six, directly under under, uh, the unclassified, it says other, and the second second, uh, sentence, we... We would group such objects in the category pending, pending scientific advance, advances that allowed us to better understand them. In other words, they are so perplexed by what they're dealing with that they're hoping that we can make scientific advances to get to the point that we could at least allow us to better understand what we're dealing with. And again, what we're dealing with, as mentioned many times, and I've been saying for years, is a multiplicity of phenomena. It's not one thing, it's many things. And it's not necessarily one source, and I doubt that. It's many sources. And it may have met, there may be many agendas and uh, purposes, some being innate, who knows? Um, some of these things may be very much a part of our natural environment. I don't know. May be here longer than we have. So um, much to do about phenomena and a lot more questions is what we're dealing with, but at least they're addressing it. A multiplicity of phenomena is what I would like to pursue with you on the other side of our break, Sam Moranto. But I did want to get in this one anecdote. Way back in the day, this is probably about 2005, I was taking phone calls overnight for a show that I produced on local radio. There was a gentleman who called in to indicate his interest in the UFO subject, which was being discussed on air at that moment. 
And he said something to me I'll never forget. This man had been, he was no longer, oh, he was a veteran rather than being active service. He was among naval air personnel. And I asked him, well, so have you ever seen anything? I've never seen a flying saucer, anything I would call a UFO. I'd love to, but I can't say that I have. And he said, oh, sure. You know, there are a number of us who have seen things and it doesn't look like anything we can put in the air. But if you go up the chain of command, he said, that's known as a career killer. Yep. I agree with you 100 percent. And in journalism, it's, I still think up until recently, it was always the third rail in journalism. You bring out this topic, forget it. You may not be uh, allowed to put another report or uh, editorial out. You know, So it's a good point. We are talking, fortunately for all of us, with Sam Maranto. We love him as a man and for his expertise. He's a great guy. Suzanne and I have broken bread, actually shared some pizza with this gentleman in the Chicago area. He is the state director of the Mutual UFO Network for the state of Illinois. He has a vast trove of knowledge that we love to tap into whenever we get the chance. So we'll talk about the multiplicity of phenomena attending or covered under the umbrella of this report, which was released last month. It's very important stuff, endlessly perplexing, and no doubt the subject of continuing controversy. But I love to hear the stories. Give us a couple of minutes and we'll be right back on Manson Mitchell, right here at Seattle's eerily terrestrial home of alternative talk, AM 1150. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to mansonmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mance and Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. What's one of your favorite memories? Hmm, let's see. Well, there was this one time I went snorkeling in the Caribbean when I was a kid. It really just blew my mind. I mean, when you're sitting on the beach, it's so peaceful and you sort of forget there's a whole other world under there just full of all kinds of life. We saw the most beautiful corals. I remember thinking they were waving at us as they moved with the ocean. And then there were all these amazing fish. They kind of reminded me of tropical birds. 
They were so bright and colorful, just darting all over the place like birds in the sky. I'll never forget it. It completely changed the way I look at the ocean. Most of us have a memory of being in nature we'll never forget. Let's protect the world's natural places so more memories can be made for generations to come. Visit worldwildlife.org. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed political science professor Caroline Heldman for her analysis of political events from the latest news. On Saturday, Carl Petrie returns to talk about his latest book, Somewhere the Dead Are Singing. Keep it down over there. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Alternative Talk 1150, the talk of the sound. Mitchell and our guest this hour, Sam Maranto from the Illinois chapter of the Mutual UFO Network. Um, Sam, if people would like to learn more about what you do or about the phenomenon itself, do you have a recommendation about how they can connect with you or where they can go to learn more? Well, they could email me at MUFONSAM1, M-U-F-O-N, Sam, S-A-M-1, number, you know, the number one, at gmail.com. And um, the other thing is you could, uh, I'm going to be updating the um, the site and a few other things that we're going to be working on. So you could go to IllinoisMUFON.com uh, or MyMUFON.com. It'll be updated pretty soon. We're going to be doing a panel with uh, Dr. Rodiger, uh, Rob Swiatek, and um, we're going to have Dave Marler on, and we're gonna have a panel specifically about this. And uh, we're gonna talk about the historical uh, cases and uh, events that brought us up to this point with the this very interesting uh, DOD report, or DOI actually. So uh, that's gonna be- yeah, so it's going to be online. What I could do is send you the information when we have it set up. It'll be on the 24th, and I'll get you the information, and you can share it with uh, your members. How's that? Okay. All right. And then uh, we're going to be having more of them. In fact, we're going to be doing it? ongoing panels. Okay. Great. And it, if if people want to go searching through the internet, can they find the panel on the 24th somewhere? I'll have it posted on the site. And, and which site would that be? MyMUFON or IllinoisMUFON.com. It'll have it, it'll be posting uh, it. MyMUFON.com. Yeah, MyMUFON, like me, my. Oh, oh, my oh, MUFON. My MUFON. I had to keep it simple. Some people can't spell Illinois, so. <laughs> right, right, very good. Um, one of the things that I, I mentioned to Gary in preparation for our time with you was that back in 2010, we interviewed Leslie Kane, who wrote UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record. We also subsequently interviewed Richard Dolan, who wrote the book After Disclosure, to talk about what what could occur after things become disclosed. Now we have this report, which is an official report. Now, Richard Dolan and Leslie Kane, of course, are individuals who are not in the government. But now we have the government coming out with a report. And, and I said to Gary, it's almost as though 
there are steps in getting to full disclosure. And at some point there will be a tipping point. And, you know, when you, when you think back to the first um, flying saucer that was seen and was named a flying saucer because it looked like a saucer to today, I mean, do you also have that sense that we're, we're getting to that tipping point? Enough people have written books, enough people have been on TV, now they're doing this report with a, a, um, a more serious tone to it, not being laughed at. And, and I said to Gary, you know, when, when, uh, when, when they had the, um, the, the gosh, I'm trying to think 1939 when they had the, the right the the radio program War of the Worlds and everybody mm-hmm. went crazy. I said to Gary, you know, if you if you expose everything all at once like a huge explosion, people will go nuts, but it almost seems like things are happening in a slow methodical way to get people used to the idea. Does that make sense to you? It's baby steps. Nothing can be done all at once. It, it's just, it would clog everything. It would, it would be insane. The other thing is, in all honesty, all we're trying to do at this point, I think, is to I analyze, I shouldn't say we, I, I mean, we're reacting it. This isn't just a, a scenario. I'm, I'm qualifying my statement. This isn't just a scenario that the government is, is looking at. We are dealing with it as a paradigm. It's, it's, this is a social dynamic. This yes. is a change. There is a huge change uh, as far as the sediment on this. And, and that is only going to creep throughout all social uh, structures. In other words, it's going to be like dominoes. Not yeah. in negative sense, but in the sense of, of uh, a, uh, let's say, uh, a paradigm change. So we you have people at least awakening to the fact that the phenomena is genuine. We have something here, not in all instances. The other aspect is we really truly don't know all the aspects to all of these things that are going on. So that makes it even more exciting. But getting back to your, um, your point, I think the bottom line is, yes, we're having a small, small incremental um, degree of disclosure to the fact that, hey, there's something else going on, like it or not. And that's it. There may be other things coming down the pike that we have no control about. And they're, they're readying us for that, too. We never know. But we have lagged behind other nations in mm-hmm. fully reporting what can be reported, what can be released. I'm thinking of the UK, yes, France, Brazil has been pretty hot on the trail of this topic. I give them credit for that. Yes. The South American countries are very proactive. And in fact, Uruguay, they actually educate their children the fact that we're not alone. There's something else engaging us, whether it's from another place, if, you know, space and time, you know, it's not space and time, it's space time. So are we dealing with something that uh, isn't under the same constraints as we are? when it comes to dealing with the uh, uh, the properties of space-time. So when we're looking at this, the in 2004, I think I mentioned before, the whole interdimensional phenomena was one thing that dragged me 
into a different uh, realm of uh, looking at the subject. So it's far more complex than we could even imagine. So I actually empathize with anybody in power, especially our government and those individuals having to deal with this. You know, Sam, I promised that we would get into a multiplicity of phenomena. I love that turn of phrase. There, what is it that struck you about the reported incidents? One that I can just toss out there, if I have it correct, and if I'm wrong, please correct me. One craft was observed dropping an altitude about 80,000 feet in less than a full second. Is it possible for any human pilot to survive that kind of maneuver? No, uh, there's discrepancy on the exact placing of the time, but it makes no difference whether it dropped from 80,000 to 28 or 24,000 or from 28 or 24,000 to above water level in 0.78 seconds. In other words, uh, nearly, you know, a three quarters of a second. The bottom line, the, the G-force alone would be so huge, uh, 600 plus or 600 or 6,000 geez, I got to recalculate it, but it's, it's, it's insane. It's like a couple tanks laying on top of you. There's no way. And I'm talking military tanks. No, it, it's impossible. You cannot live through it. So something there is within uh, a, um, be it a vehicle or some, some, some sort of device, we'd call a UFO or UAP, whatever you want to call it. And it's controlling the if something is living in there it's controlling the uh uh the effects of gravity around it so there is no g-force under the assumption there's something living inside some of these devices seem to be relatively small and may very well be uh some sort of drone type apparatus of a different intelligence or a different source uh, the other thing is some of this may also be and this is something we have to take in consideration um, devices from advanced uh, special access programs or unacknowledged special uh, access programs, UAPs and SAPs. Now, is that the case and how many of them? I have no idea. But that is also one of those things they put into the categories of what they have to take into consideration. Um, I think some of the things that we could easily discount in their five uh, categories is the uh, sky or, or clutter in the air of say bags or what are their birds or whatever. So we can break that down to basically only three things. And what we're mainly concerned with that I feel the bulk of it comes into is the other category. And that's what we're trying to address right in our conversation. We have heard multiple times that um, most UFOs can be explained that was a satellite, that was a star, that was a, a weather balloon, that was this or that, it was a bird, it was, you know, something. The, the issue comes up with the 2% or so that cannot be explained. It's a very small amount. Yes. But and that, completely that's unexplainable. You completely. cannot explain it. Yes. I mean, take, take a look at Project Blue Book. You have 12,000 uh, submitted reports, and they break it down to 701 that they really can't explain. And some people say it's because you have insufficient evidence. No, those are the better cases. 
Those are ones with compelling information and evidence. And we have physical trace cases. We have 3,000 plus physical trace cases. So when we hear this stuff, well, we need an ashtray or some, some imbecilic uh, comment like that. No, we have the evidence. There is evidence there. And yes, it is extraordinary. And any evidence in that category is evidence enough to be cast, uh, categorized as ex, uh, extraordinary evidence. In other words, it by itself is extraordinary. So you're 100% correct. It's a small percentage, but it's a percentage nonetheless. One of the quotes that I took from the executive report, um, there was something that came before it because I have a little ellipsis here, but then it says, lack sufficient information in our data set to attribute incidents to specific explanations. Correct. Lack sufficient information. Um, you know, if these reports, thousands and thousands and thousands of reports, and you're saying, oh, we don't have enough information yet. Really? You don't have sufficient information over all these decades? Excuse me. <laughs> the data set is huge. The problem is they're only looking at 144 right now, and they're divvying that up. And then when they take and they look at, well, there's only 80 with multiple sensors. Well, guess what? Now you look at other reports throughout history, long before we had any other advanced technology, stealth or anything else. And that information is there. So I find it interesting that they're only starting with 2004. And there's, and I'll give you two in both sides of the coin here. One being that in 2004, we had the most sophisticated systems out there. That's true. The Aegis system, which by one, they had all these new um, new sensors and flare. So the bottom line is, yes, we had the ability to do far more and see these things and record these things unlike we ever did before. But, and there's the verbal eraser, we still have all this volume of, of military reports, civilian reports that go back decades and quite possibly even centuries, if you're willing to analyze anecdotal reports that we take as being gospel truths and throw them into the equation also. And I can hear the voice of Carl Sagan talking and dismissing anecdotal evidence. You can't rely on anecdotal. I, I was used to love that in billions and billions. <laughs> I'll always remember him for, for that, if nothing else. And there's so much more to the story of Carl Sagan. God rest his soul. Yes. I did want to ask you, Sam, because you took us in the very neighborhood, Tinley Park, Illinois, a stone's throw from where you and your wonderful wife, Julie, reside. The Tinley Park incident remains unexplained. We're talking about the extraordinary. We're talking about things that we look at that shouldn't be happening in the sky above us, and yet we observe these things. If you could give us a thumbnail sketch of, of what happened in your neighborhood years ago, I'm sure our listeners would love to hear it. Well, it happened on the first mass sighting night was uh, August the 21st of 2004. And 2004 was the year of the weird, is why I refer to it. In fact, a book that I'm still in the process of writing, it will be that title. Uh, 2000, August the 21st was the air and water show. Some 2 million people were down at the waterfront. The 
the Blue Angels were out there and a myriad of various other planes were out there from the Air Force and Navy, et cetera. Um, that night, that, that very night, Ozzy Osbourne was playing at what was then the Tweeter Center by I-80. It was a perfectly clear evening. The sky was as clear as could be. You could see stars. And uh, the funny thing that happened was all of a sudden there was these three red lights seen in somewhat of a triangular pattern or some variation thereof. And uh, people were paying attention to it. Dogs and coyotes started yiping. And uh, they also had interference on radio band at uh, uh, on the Nextel phones and baby monitors. They were getting all sorts of strange static and uh, they weren't even working. Well, people were outside having barbecues, block parties, and people were coming home from uh, downtown and also leaving the concert. So people were outside and they were noticing these three unusual red lights in the sky that were hovering, then moving in a counterclockwise motion and moving across the uh, the area. And that was at a high altitude, by the way. Um, and what was so unusual is there was absolutely no air traffic during that period of time. And you know the Chicagoland area. To not have any air traffic for a period of some nearly two hours is unheard of. So kids were pointing it out to their parents and saying, oh, look, UFOs. Well, they're looking at it and seeing no air traffic. They weren't thinking UFOs. They were thinking, heck, we're only three years away from uh, you know, the 9-11 uh, uh, scenario in 2001. So they were concerned about possible terrorist scenarios. So this was really scaring people up. Reports started coming into the uh, 911, both emergency and non-emergency. And that evening, we had just come home uh, the week prior from um, uh, our 25th anniversary celebrating on a couple-day cruise. And Julie got up, and it was early it was early in the morning or 11 o'clock, somewhere around there. She got up, and she said, she woke me. She goes, did you hear that? I'm like, what on earth is she talking about? 25 years, and all of a sudden, I may have to see if the warranty is good on this one or what. You know, maybe she's broken. <laughs> but uh, she startled me something severe because I heard nothing and I shut the phone off at night. So there's, it wasn't a ringing or anything, but the next morning I got up and sure enough, I had calls from Peter Davenport and uh, Dave Marler. I had all these reports coming in, people are calling me. And uh, uh, the bottom line is we got some v some video and we we're able to see that this thing moves in a, a, a like a large triangle, and we had uh, 13 uh, videos that we were able to analyze. Again, and then on the on October 31st, a Halloween sighting. And the funny thing about the Halloween sighting, it coincides to the sighting with the Nimitz, where they started to paint these objects uh, coming out of the sky two weeks prior to their uh, actual um, their actual run out there in the ocean doing their um, maneuvers, and it had been right during that same period of time. So the bottom line is we had multiple sightings. It was mass sightings, and right here in good old Tinley Park, Illinois, and uh, it was also seen around the world. It wasn't the only place. So I hope I could give you a little bit of information. Uh, yes, yes, you certainly did. And 
by the description of the craft, if in fact that's what it was, it reminds me a lot of what was seen over Belgium, the skies over Belgium back in 1990. And the government of Belgium, much to their credit, took this very seriously. They had no pat answers and said as much. True. The actual show, and you can see some of the footage on UFO Hunter Series 2 Invasion, Illinois. Um, if you get a chance, take a peek at it. Our estimation on this object, it was, if it's one solid object, it could have been as much as a couple thousand feet in length. Uh, we have video of an airplane, uh, Southwest Airlines, going up some mile and a half away. And you can see this, the illuminations compared to the illuminations on the edges, uh, we're presuming the edges of this object. This thing is massive if it's one singular object. Objects were coming also in and out of it. So it wasn't just a, a single uh, object. It was there were more things being seen. That that always amazes me. That really, I get goosebumps, uh, objects going in and out. The mothership, yeah. that's what it is. And let me ask you one quick question. Looking at the dimensions of that, the diameter of it, do you know of a hangar on Earth that could house <laughs> such a craft? Not at all. In fact, you know, the, the more um, conservative estimates were 1,500 feet in length. So um, and you stop and think of the Hindenburg or something like that, it, it, it's substantially larger than, than, than an aircraft carrier. But that way, uh, you could land many 747s on one of those. Right so, there in Tinley Park. <laughs> yeah. And it seems to be pretty much the same object or relatively similar to what was seen, one of the objects seen in Southern Illinois in 2000, January 4th and 5th, 2000, and quite possibly the same as what was seen earlier that year in Rockford, Illinois, where we had mass sightings too. Mm. Sam Maranta, we're always thrilled to have you. It was too long between visits. There, we're shortening that time frame now, so uh, we're going to get used to having you on as this story develops and more news, new news comes along on the UFO UAP front. We would love to have you back. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, and thank you out there in your uh, audience. All right. Next up, we have Jupiter Rising. Doesn't that seem so fitting? Yes. <laughs> Our friend Eileen Grimes will be at it again. Very good, ladies and gentlemen. We hope that you have a wonderful weekend. Enjoy the summer, and we'll be back next Friday, 10 a.m. Pacific, right here on AM 1150 and 1150kknw.com.